Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today, we're bringing to you a bonus episode of a presentation I recently gave at UC Berkeley. It was an outreach event. The reason I was up there is I was leading a group of 22 high school students onto the campus to just get engaged in spiritual conversations with people who see the world differently. So they went out on campus to engage students and had some great conversations. We also brought in some speakers to address our group, such as a Unitarian uh, reverend. We brought in an interfaith chaplain. Uh, We brought in a couple atheists with different perspectives and a professor who describes herself as a lesbian poet. And the students learn how to ask good questions, but also treat other people with grace and love and kindness. This presentation you're going to hear in this episode was the last night did an outreach event in partnership with Grace Point Church. And the approach I took was basically to reason with the students that a thoughtful spiritual quest should begin with Christianity. And then I gave them four reasons why. And this approach was inspired by my colleague, Craig Hazen, in the apologetics program. And then I took questions at the end. I think you'll find the sound is a little bit hollow because I'm in a huge classroom in the UC Berkeley campus, but it's very easy to follow along. And I think you'll find the content just fascinating and thoughtful. So sit back or even go on a walk and get some fresh air and enjoy this bonus episode of the Think Biblically podcast. You ever had a difficult conversation that you were dreading? Kind of hoping if you didn't bring up this conversation, it would just go away. I grew up about eight hours south of here in the mountains of San Diego, and the day after I got my license, the day after my birthday, I was driving my dad's 58 Chevrolet Cherry truck, and I hit a deer. Now, my dad was pretty gracious, understanding that accidents happen. But I'll tell you another conversation I had with my father was a little bit tougher. But to understand why this conversation is tough, you have to understand a little bit about my father's background. My dad grew up in a small town called Union City, Michigan. And my grandfather, his father, was the town drunk. My dad actually said he almost never remembered his father being sober the entire time my father grew up. My dad's older sister took her own life. My dad's older brother sued their family for everything they had. And to be very frank with you, my father was severely sexually abused by somebody who lived on their farm for seven years until my dad was 13 years old, strong enough to slam the man against the wall and say, if you touch me again, I will kill you, and he meant it. (laughs) To make a long story short, my dad went to college pretty desperate to find meaning and significance and just kind of, he wanted to find love and relationships and life. And he met a group of Christians that were different. They seemed to have a peace about life, contentment, and he asked them, and what they said, they gave him two words. They said, Jesus Christ. My dad thought this was a joke. So he actually had a full scholarship uh, covered to law school. And he had enough money from a private business, even at about 19, 20 years old. And he left college, went around the world to the Middle East, to Europe, etc., to gather the evidence proving that Christianity was false. He was going to show the resurrection didn't happen and the Bible's not true. Well, to make a long story short, my dad began to probe into it. He became convinced that the Bible is actually true and ended up becoming a Christian. And he's spoken to over 1,200 universities in life, including, I have a picture of him in the late 60s, right on scroll, all speaking 
in the height of the free speech movement here at Berkeley. My dad spent his life speaking and proclaiming as an evangelist for the Christian faith. Well, when I was in college, about 19 years old, this is like mid-90s, okay? People are first getting email addresses. You couldn't Google yet, but you could search and read blogs. And for the first time, at least in my life, I came across all of these really smart people who were taking to task some of the things that I had learned growing up. And it unsettled me. I started to wonder, I know my parents mean well, but what if they're wrong about this Christian thing? So I'm dreading this conversation with my dad, thinking in my mind, and by the way, he, I mean, he's written books on this that have sold tens of millions of copies, and I'm thinking this evangelist, influential son, doesn't believe it like I can see the headlines now. And finally, we were in Breckenridge, Colorado, up in the mountains, and we went out to coffee, and I said, Dad, I've just got to be honest with you. I'm not sure that I think Christianity is true or not. Not know what he would say. And I'll never forget my dad's response. He goes, son, I think that's great. And I paused and looked at him and said, are you even listening to me? <laughs> I know some of you can pretend you're listening, but you're really thinking of something else. But my dad has kind of mastered that, and I'm thinking, you didn't hear anything I said. He goes, son, I didn't raise you to believe stuff because I said so. But you can't live on my convictions. You've got to seek truth and follow it. Because I love you no matter what. Because I'm actually confident if you seek truth and follow, you will continue to believe in Jesus because Jesus is the truth. Well, make a long story short, quite obviously, if I'm reaching, speaking at a Christian outreach event, I'm a Christian. And maybe I'll come back to that during Q&A if you want to know a little bit more of my story. But I want to draw a contrast for you in terms of what we're doing tonight. That was my father's story outside the Christian faith, actually trying to prove that it was false. Me within the Christian faith, well, I don't know if I buy what my parents tell me. I don't know if this is true if I'm going to bet my life on it. You know what we had in common? Is both of us, in a sense, began our spiritual quest by examining the claims of Christ. So I just want to convince you of something tonight. If you're a thoughtful person on a spiritual quest, you should begin by considering the claims of Christianity. That's it. I'm not here to argue that Christianity is true. I think it's true. If during Q&A you want to know why, I'm happy to tell you why. My goal tonight is to persuade you, if you want to know truth and you're open to it, that a thoughtful person would just begin by considering the claims of Christ. And by the way, it's not me, just me, this Christian professor, who would make this argument. Some of you might recognize the name Anthony Flew. Now, how many of you recognize the name Richard Dawkins? Okay, quite obviously. One of the most influential atheists in the world. Before Richard Dawkins, although he had a little bit of different temperament and approach, Anthony Flew was the most widely read philosophical atheist in the world for half a century. He first presented one of his arguments before C.S. Lewis at the Socratic Club in Oxford, how the idea of God is meaningless. Hugely influential philosopher. When I was in grad school, we would read his works as an atheist. Well, he died in 2010, but in 2007, he wrote a book. Notice called, There Is a God, Why the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Now, as far as we know, he did not become a Christian. 
They said when he started, the science is pointing away from God, but through the second half of the 20th century, from the DNA to the structure of the universe to the fine-tuning, it points towards some mind behind the cosmos. Now, he didn't become a Christian, but he said something interesting. At the end of his book, he said, I think the Christian religion is the one religion that most clearly deserves to be honored and respected. There's nothing like the combination of a charismatic figure like Jesus and a first-class intellectual like Paul. If you're wanting omnipotence to set up a religion, this is the one to beat. So I just want to give you four reasons why. A thoughtful question again with Christianity. The first reason takes me to a movie you probably haven't seen unless you watch TNT at midnight. <laughs> this is a movie with Antonio Banderas. If you don't know Antonio Banderas, he's the voice of the cat in Shrek. <laughs> Got it? Like, oh, now I know who he is. So he's in this movie called The Body. And of course it's fictional. And he's a Green Beret who becomes a Catholic priest. But it turns out, in the movie, they find a tomb in Jerusalem kind of dating to the time of the middle of the first century. It's empty, and they find a coin that was uh, dated to the time of Pilate. So, of course, they think they found what? The body of... Okay, look. <laughs> this, no secret, this is a Christian outreach event. If you don't know the answer to a question, just say Jesus. And <laughs> In the movie, they think they found the body of Jesus. So the Catholic Church goes into an uproar, calls in Antonio Banderas, because of his background in Green Bray, maybe he'd be a good investigator, to show that this is false. You can watch the movie if you really want to, but as I watch this, I'm thinking, this is interesting. Because there's no other religion on the planet that it matters whether we have the body or the tomb where this person was buried, like it does with Jesus. You see, if I had the skull of Jesus in my backpack, number one, I'd be rich. <laughs> number two, Christianity would be false. See, I think a thoughtful spiritual question should at least begin by considering the claims of Christ, because Christianity is testable. It invites you to use your mind and consider if the evidence is true or if it's false. I did my doctoral research and worldview studies, so I did classes on Buddhism and on Hinduism and on Islam, etc. And I enjoyed studying other religions. And I don't think I really realized until my studies how bizarre this one verse is, written by Paul in the 50s. Paul writes a statement that stands out almost like a sore thumb amongst different religious texts. He writes this. He says, if Christ is not risen, our faith is worthless. Now, why would Paul, roughly two decades after this happened, while people are still alive, say, if we find the body of Jesus, this is done? Number one, he had a lot of confidence that people wouldn't find the body of Jesus. But you see what he's doing? Here's the way I put it. I don't know of any other religious system that states its entire belief system on a single, testable, historical event. In other words, the apostles and Jesus, when they start proclaiming the gospel, they say, test it, talk to the eyewitnesses, examine it, look and consider the facts for yourself. 
Now, if you've heard the typical narrative today, I'm here with a group of high school students, and we live in Southern California at Christian School, and we've been having an amazing time on your campus. We've met with a Unitarian reverend. Last night we met with an atheist. Uh, I was earlier today, and then last night we met with, see if I get this right, a professor, minister, poet, lesbian, theologian, who came in to talk to our group. We're on campus just engaging people with very different beliefs, trying to have spiritual conversations and talk about things that matter. And today we had an atheist who came in and he said, I'm going to define faith for you. Faith is when you believe something without evidence. Now I asked him, I said, okay, that's your view of faith. Can you give me any evidence that this is actually what faith is? And he couldn't, ironically. But there's this idea, this adjective we use when talking about faith. What do we call it? What? Faith. Blind faith. In fact, probably if I said, give me evidence in the Bible that this is taught, you'd say, well, what about the story of Thomas? What about the story of doubting Thomas? He doubts and gets castigated for doubting. At least this is how Richard Dawkins explains it. He says, Thomas demanded evidence that the other apostles whose faith was so strong, they did not need evidence, are held up to us as worthy of imitation. Do you understand Dawkins' interpretation of this passage in John? He says, Thomas wanted evidence, and Jesus castigates him for demanding evidence. And then he says, those who don't need evidence are held up as worthy of support. Because the Christian faith is one that doesn't invite evidence. Friends, he hasn't read the passage carefully. Did Thomas have any evidence? Yes. Number one, Jesus said he would die, and he would come back on multiple occasions. Second, he had the testimony of 10 of his best friends who said, we've seen the risen Jesus. In this passage, Jesus is not castigating Thomas for demanding evidence. He's saying, Thomas, you get to see Jesus in the flesh. Blessed are those who don't have the same kind of evidence that you have, and yet still believe. How do I know this? Read the next verse. It's not that hard. This is a climax in the book of John. It says, now in John 20, 30 through 31, it says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. The book of John is about Jesus doing miracles that are recorded so other people can have a confident faith based upon testimony. Another trip we've done in the past is we sometimes go to BYU and get to talk to our friends, part of the Mormon religion, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And my son and I, who's here on this trip, this is probably six or seven years ago, we're in Salt Lake City, and we walked around the campus, and we're knocking on doors, and a fellow answered, who was just graduating, studying law, was about to go to D.C. and practice, and we said, hey, we're Christian missionaries, do you have time to talk? But I'm going to be honest, it's kind of fun to do this in Salt Lake City, because so many of them have been missionaries and knocked on your door and my door. <laughs> So even when they don't have time, they have this look of, like, compassion because they've been in your shoes. <laughs> and the guy's like, well, I don't have time, but if you come back in 30 minutes, we'll talk. So we came back, he invited us, and we had a long conversation. And I just simply said, I said, look, why should I believe that Mormonism is true? If it's true, honestly, I would believe it. And he said to me, he said, who's that BYU? He said, look, if you read Moroni 10.4, it says, read the Book of Mormon and pray about it. And God will give you a feeling in your spirit that it's true. 
I said to him, I said, this is interesting. You studied law. When you study history, you look for external evidence. When you study science, you look for external evidence. But now when it comes to religion, you rely, rely upon an internal feeling. This is not what I see in the scriptures. Jesus said, I fulfill prophecy. They appeal to eyewitnesses. They appeal to evidence you can confirm and you can test. Friends, one reason if you're on a spiritual quest, I think you should begin with Christianity, is because Christianity is actually testable. The facts matter. You can examine it. Now there's a second reason why. Think a thoughtful spiritual question to begin with Christianity. Can you guys tell me, if you're going to buy a new car, what's going to matter to you about the car you buy? Throw it out there. I heard mileage. I heard color. That's deep. Okay, I get it. What else? Kind. Safety. Okay. Says the mom in the presence. This is good. We're glad you're here. What else? Price, right? That's huge. So if you narrow it down to three cars. Three cars, and they're this. One's 20 grand, one's 10 grand, and one is free. <laughs> Which one at least should you consider and rule out first? Free. Exactly. Well, I knew that was going to register with college students, right? <laughs> Friends, it makes no sense to pay for something if you can get it for free. Don't pay for something that's for free. This is the second reason why I think a spiritual question began with Christianity. Because it's uniquely in Christianity that salvation is free. Friends, it is only in Christianity that salvation is a free gift if you're simply humble enough to accept it. You can't work for it. You can't do anything for it. In fact, there's another passage, and if you study different religions, it's so bizarre. If you've grown up in the Christian church, maybe it doesn't strike you as bizarre. But Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So no one can boast. He says you can't boast that you've got salvation. Because salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it. Now, not long ago, uh, my son told me I needed to up my shoe game. <laughs> he thought, Dad, if a speaker walked on stage and was wearing Jordans, I would listen to him. I'm like, really? That's all it takes? Okay. Well, so I've been kind of into, into shoes lately, trying to buy cool shoes. And about three or four weeks ago, I was speaking to about 40 or 50 kind of people that worked with students about Gen Z, which is your generation. I was making a point about Nike being a particularly popular brand in this generation. Guy walks up to me and he goes, he goes, hey, what size shoe are you? I said, 10 wide. He goes, oh, I was just curious. I said, okay. We have a break and I come back and sitting on the podium where I'm speaking, one pair of Kobe slash DeRozan shoes this is Saturday, by the way, the day before Kobe passed away. And that was right in our community. We knew a lot of people connected with us. The day before he gave me a pair of Kobe. So I've been wearing them a lot just out of respect and honor for Kobe. And then I walked behind him. You know what I saw? It was these. 
Now, none of you went, oh, that's awesome, because maybe you don't quite understand what the issues are, which I didn't at first. I'm not judging you. Don't worry. <laughs> so I told him, like, oh, that's awesome. These are Jordan 1s. I've always wanted blue ones. So I come home, I show my son, and I'm like, gosh, this guy gave me Jordan 1s. They're blue. I'm about to try them on. He's like, Dad, stop. The, the, the shoelaces had never been untied. They had never been tried on. Now, why? The Jordan 1s came out in the 80s. And they were first red and black. And then they did a special color like this in, I think it was 86, 87. Then in the early 2000s, they re-released it. We go online and look. You know what these shoes are worth? A thousand dollars. Right? That's how I felt. I'm like, you just kicked this guy gave me shoes worth a thousand dollars. I'm wearing it. No, I'm not wearing it. <laughs> Did this cost him something? Yeah. Was it a sacrifice from him? Absolutely. Did it cost me anything? No, it was a free gift. Sometimes I have a hard time accepting gifts. This was not one of them for me. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's not one of them. You realize this was a total free gift. Didn't ask for it. I didn't deserve it. I did nothing for it. He gave it of his own sacrifice. Because to use Christian jargon, he wanted to bless me. I don't want to go too far in terms of the shoe versus salvation connection. I realize it has its liabilities. But please realize when it comes to the Christian faith, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Is that God, that story is that loves you so much, freely offers salvation in a way that costs this God something, if you're humble and willing enough to accept it. We've also taken trips in the past into uh, have conversations with, with Muslims about their faith. And it's a little tougher, but in, in L.A. there's a number of mosques, there are cities, and we went up about 17 high school students in a group, we went in this area where there's a lot of bakeries and restaurants ran by Muslims. And my son and I were walking up, we saw Arabic all over the wall, and thought, well, maybe there's some Muslims that just be willing to have a spiritual conversation. So we walked up and heard three people just kind of talking, debating in Arabic, and I said, hey, my name is Sean Dow, I'm a teacher, this is my son, and we're wondering if any of you are Muslims that just would be willing to have a spiritual conversation. And this guy goes, oh, don't talk to him, he's a bad Muslim. Talk to Ahmed, he's a good Muslim. So, <laughs> we sat down and just, we had a great conversation. I said, hey, I'm curious, how, how do you practice your faith? What do you love about your faith? What do you and I have in common? I said, what are misconceptions people have about your faith? And I said, what do you think is different between your faith and mine? One thing he said, he goes, in your religion, you have this thing of grace that it's free. We don't think salvation is free. God grants it. But you are to follow the five pillars and show that you're worthy of this. You don't find this concept of grace in Islam. I'm not saying it makes it better or worse. That's not my point. It's a difference between Christianity and between Islam. In fact, he pointed to a, a surah. 1713, it said, For we have made every man's actions clean to his neck. And we will bring forth to him on the resurrection a book which he will find open. So hopefully, when you're done on the scales of your life, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. 
That's very different than Christianity. It's a free gift if you're willing to accept it. So here's one of the differences, and I realize this is somewhat simplistic. But essentially, you could say religion is about man or human beings trying to get to God. Christianity is about God coming to man. Almost every other religion in the world says if you do this, you can acquire salvation or spiritual insight or get to the divine in some fashion. Christianity actually says you can't do anything. In fact, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you will fail. But God will come to you. And that's a Christian story. I think, number one, at least you should begin a search with Christianity. This is testable. Isaiah says, come let us reason together. Jesus says, love God with your mind. But number two, salvation is free. Don't pay for something. You can get it free. Third, I think the reason you start with Christianity is because you can actually live like Christianity is true. Don't you want a religion that you can live out consistently in the world? So you don't have to compartmentalize your faith beliefs from the rest of your life. Now, there's a lot of angles we could go with this, but there's an interesting quote by Darwin. Darwin says something very fascinating that a lot of people haven't really reflected on. And Darwin wrote this. He said, the horror doubt always arises whether the conviction of man's mind, which is developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust the conviction of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? And you realize what he's saying? He's basically saying if you have this unguided material, blind, purposeless process of evolution. The brain has not been constructed to understand and know truths about the world. Rather, it's a result of this unguided process. And it happens to help us survive, but let's face it, you can survive on false beliefs, as long as you get your body in the right place at the right time. So essentially what he's saying is, if his theory is true, it undermines any basis we have for trusting our cognitive faculties that we use to determine that it's true. Did you catch that? He basically said, if my theory is true, it undermines any basis we have for reasonably concluding that his theory is true. Now, if you come to the conclusion that your theory is true and it undermines your entire basis of arriving at that, that's kind of a serious problem. Now, within at least the Judeo-Christian tradition, you can trust your cognitive faculties because God is reason, the Logos. God has made a world that is rational and logical and put us here to understand and develop and cultivate the earth. So it's no coincidence that in the traditions of the world, actually the scientific enterprise most urgent in a culture shaped by a Judeo-Christian way of thinking. I was speaking, it's probably 10 or 12 years ago, there's an atheist group here on campus, and they have since disbanded, and I'm pretty sure there's other skeptical groups in its place. And I was making this point to a group, we were invited, our students were there, and there's about 10 or 12 in the classroom, and they said, hey, make a case for Christianity, and we'll respond. I was like, cool, this will be fun. So I made this point. I said, if you take this purely naturalistic evolutionary worldview 
It undermines any confidence you can have in reason and rationality and science. Your commitment to this Darwinian model undermines your other commitment here to rationality and reason. And the student who was there at the time, he goes, he goes, no, actually, you're wrong. He said, science now shows that you can't trust the brain. When I paused and I thought about it, I said, okay, hang on a minute. To use science to come to the conclusion that you can't trust the brain, don't you have to trust the brain in the first place to even be able to come to that conclusion? So science can't tell us you can't trust the brain unless it's first reliable enough to do science. Do you see the point? Friends, if there is no God, I'm not sure we can trust our cognitive faculties. Now you might say, here are some reasons I can give you that we can, but here's the problem. That would be a circular move. C.S. Lewis once said, if the value of reasoning is in doubt, you cannot try to establish it by reasoning. Let me give you a fourth reason why. Number one, Christianity's testable. Number two, salvation is free. Number three, you actually have a worldview that you can live out consistently in the world. But fourth, I'm going to submit to you that there's something about Christianity that resonates with the deepest desires of the human heart. In other words, what I think is if you really understand the Christian message, you would wish that it were true. Not that I say such a thing. Probably most of you here don't have a collective memory of 9-11. Before your time, which is fine. I remember the morning I woke up, the time, the place, the class I was going to epistemology one with Doug Guybett in my master's program in philosophy. Turn on the TV and we'll never forget the images that I saw. You know what's interesting about tragedies like 9-11? You know what it shows? It reveals what we care about most. When tragedy hits, we focus on what matters. And all of us know it's relationships that matter most, don't we? My wife and I, I mean, it felt like weeks. Night after night, we would watch the news and they would talk about stories of people who lost spouses, a husband who lost his wife who was pregnant, people who lost friends and neighbors. And I remember watching this just crying day after day. You know what they did do shows on? They didn't start off by going, man, look how much this is going to cost New York City. Like, okay, that's a bummer, but the focus was not on that. They were like, oh, look how it's going to ruin the skyline. This is terrible. Everybody's weak. And okay, bummer's not on the skyline, but the focus was on the people. Because you and I know persons matter. In fact, you probably heard the story. But when some of the planes had gone down, there's another plane of a man by the name of Todd Beamer. Remember the story? The plane was getting low enough, and he was able to realize and figure out that the plane was being hijacked. I think this one was maybe headed to the White House or to another Capitol building. And what did he do? He picked up the phone. You tell me, who did he call? It's his wife. He didn't call his head, can I get the sports court one more time? I gotta know. No. When his life 
was on the line. He called the people that mattered most. Because when the chips are down and when there's a tragedy, it tells us that we care about people. And he famously said, let's roll when he tried to, have to stop the plane from being hijacked. He was able to crash and sacrifice his own life by protecting many others. So let me ask you a question. In which worldview is there the deepest value for people and for persons? Friends, it's not the atheistic worldview. It's not. I have a lot of conversations with atheist friends who are humans. They say we value humans. And I say, how within the atheistic worldview do you get human value? Where does this come from? How do you get human value? In fact, to be honest, in the atheist worldview, you don't get persons and relationships until 13.7 billion years into the universe. We were accidentally burped up by this blind evolutionary process that wasn't even intent on making human beings. Persons in the atheistic worldview are accidents. What about the pantheistic worldview? What about that? You see Moana and Avatar and sometimes in Star Wars films. Pantheistic worldview, interestingly enough, it says that life as we see it is an illusion. Really all is one and distinctions are artificial. There's really no distinction between you and me, mind and matter, right and wrong. All is one. There's also no distinction between persons and non-persons. We're all one. It's an illusion. It's actually uniquely within the Christian worldview that reality in its most basic, fundamental nature is personal. God is a person. In fact, God is three persons in the Trinity and is loved by his very nature. This week I told you we've met with Unitarians, we've met with skeptics, we've met with process theologians, and you know what all of them have talked about? At some point, every single one of them said life is about love. And I sat there, I thought as a Christian, it's only in the Christian worldview that fundamental to life is love because God is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in his very nature. God is relationship. God is love. And since we're made in God's image, persons have the highest value. Life is about relationship. That's the Christian story. But I also think I wonder this will take some questions. I think what matters most to you in love and relationships, what you value most, the hero you most love, is someone who sacrifices for another. Now, how do I know this? I'm guessing most, if not all of you, saw the recent movie Infinity War and its follow-up Endgame. If you haven't, spoiler alert, but you've had plenty of time. <laughs> Don't feel bad. Infinity War is one of my favorite movies because if, how many of you have seen it just by show hands? Okay, good. Don't tell me that. You know what the heart of this movie is a single moral question? There's one moral question brilliantly weaved through that film. The moral question is what is the value of a human life? And to what can we give the human life for? So think about it. The movie opens up, 
and Thanos has Thor with his brother Loki, he has a decision. Will I give you one of the stones or allow you to kill my brother? What is the value of a human life? Keep going forward, what happens? Scarlet Witch loves vision, he's got the stone in his head and she's like, no, I'm gonna protect you. Will we allow it to be destroyed to keep Thanos from getting the stone? Uh, keep going with the story, and you have, uh, it is kind of funny to get these names, Star-Lord <laughs> and Gamora, remember this? Or Chris Pratt, in case you forgot the character. <laughs> Those like, oh, got it. <laughs> what's, what's Gamora say? If Thanos gets me, I want you to take my life so he can't use me to get the soul stone. Fast forward again, Iron Man and Doctor Strange. Will Doctor Strange give up Iron Man to keep Thanos from getting a stone? Do you see the brilliant moral question at the heart of this movie? The filmmakers are brilliant. Now what happens in this movie? What's the contrast? Thanos says, and he's the bad guy, this utilitarian worldview, I will wipe out half the universe, but save himself. What does Captain America say? He says, we are not in the business of exchanging lives. Until the only way to save the universe, remember one out of 14 some million ways, the only way is for someone to willingly lay down their life for another. Do you notice something here? This movie is actually about what is real love. Now, Gamora discovers that to get the soul stone, you have to sacrifice something that you love. She laughs because she sits down and she don't love it anything. And then she realizes he's about to sacrifice her. What does she say? This is not real love. What did Jesus say? Greater love had no one than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. The greatest act of love is to lay down your life for another. That's why ending, I'm going to think about this, probably the most epic film arguably of all time, certainly within our lifetime, right? <laughs> I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars, 17, 18, 19 movies, I lost track. Tons of stars, they weave it together, trying to climax in the most powerful moment they can imagine, and they make Iron Man the hero because he sacrifices himself for somebody else. Right? They couldn't have told a better story than that. What's ironic, and you know this, is Endgame Infinity War is fictional. You see the same thing in Big Hero 6, right? The Disney movie? The main character lays down his life for the boy. You see this in films throughout the history of the world. That's all fiction. And we resonate with that because we understand that's what love is. The Christian story is there's a God who has made us for a relationship, but that has been separated because of what the Bible calls sin. And the only way, like in Infinity War and Endgame, is for the God-man to take on human flesh and willingly die for us, like Iron Man, 
so we can have salvation. I think you know in your heart that the greatest act of love would be to sacrifice your life. Friends, I gotta be honest with you. If someone came in here and was like, your life or one of these Berkeley students, I'd like to say I'd do it for you, but I might pause. <laughs> Just saying. I would like to do it for you. If someone grabbed my wife, grabbed my kids, no hesitation. I would willingly and gladly lay down my life. Jesus did do this for his family. He did it for his enemies. That's love. That's why a spiritual question began. Your thought point. Well, this began examining the claims of Christianity. You can test it. Your mind matters. Salvation is free. You actually live like it's true. And Christianity, when understood, resonates most deeply with the human heart for love, for relationships, and for a hero that sacrifices. That's what we see in the Christian faith. Ben, where are you? You step out for smoke again? Okay, here you are. <laughs> Say, <laughs> it's a leave tomorrow. I'm out. You get to clean up that one that I just said. <laughs> All right, on a more serious note, there's. <laughs> I appreciate you, Sean. <laughs> you guys are awesome. I mean, you can laugh at that. I don't think you took that as a strange compliment. <laughs> So big questions out there. I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I would do my best to try to make sense of anything from this talk. Anything else you're curious about Christianity, my own journey, I'd love to do my best to help you on your spiritual quest as well, if I can. Yeah, so um, we already received some questions, so I'm going to just jump right into it with the Q&A. And um, if you guys have further questions, please keep submitting. Okay, so um, actually we received a number of questions about health. So I'm going to just start with that because that seems to be a big topic. Um, I'm going to read one. It says, "How can a loving God send a person who lives as a law-abiding, who lives a law-abiding life, does morally right acts? How can that God send him to hell while someone who believes they're Christian tries to perform good works here and there, but usually falls short? They get sent to heaven just based on what each person believes." So let me start and tell you why I personally believe in hell. I don't like the idea of hell. It bothers me. If it doesn't bother you, you haven't really reflected on the idea of eternity and the way scripture describes it. So I don't like the idea of hell. I also know something's not true or false whether I like it or don't like it. So here's my question. Why on earth should anybody believe in hell? Seems to me, I'd like to know what the most qualified person, morally speaking, who's ever walked the planet has to say about hell. Now, why is this matter? Imagine afterwards I say, hey, when we're done at you know, 9.30 tonight or 9, whatever, let's head out to the field and I'm going to give you a clinic on how to be an NFL quarterback. Let me spare you the time. None of you should show up. <laughs> I don't even think about it. If Rogers shows up, who's a grad, where did he go again? I can't remember. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Rogers shows up, Philip Rivers shows up, Tom Brady shows up. Listen to them. Because they have the credentials, so to speak, and the authority to speak about that. 
Friends, if the claims of what Jesus made are true, he fulfilled prophecy, he walked on water, he unmistakably gave the world, whether you're a Christian or not, some of the most, if not the most, influential moral and religious and spiritual teachings ever. And he rose from the grave on the third day and lived a sinless life. If this person says there's a hell and Jesus did, then he sees with a moral clarity that you and I cannot see with. So the first question for hell is, who is this person Jesus? Did he believe in it? And if he really is the Son of God and he believed in it, and by his authority, I don't feel the freedom to go, you know what, I think Jesus got that one wrong. I'm just not comfortable with that. Now the question was, how does God send anybody to hell? I actually don't think God sends anybody to hell. C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce, there's two kind of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Or those to whom God says, thy will be done. All who are in hell, choose it. You say, that's crazy. Why would anybody choose hell? Reality is, I was just telling my son today about a Berkeley student here who I had a conversation with about 10 years ago. And I was sharing the gospel with him. And I said, so what are your questions? I tried to answer him. Bottom line, he stopped and he goes, you know, here's the deal. Here's why I'm not going to believe this Christian stuff. Because I'm texting a whole bunch of girls. Why would I give up the possibility of having sex with girls for some belief? If God damns me to hell for it, so be it. I've never had somebody speak that truthfully to me. If God gives us free will and invites us to salvation, if somebody rejects it, God is honoring that person's free choice. By the way, I do understand the question is kind of like, wait a minute, somebody's law-abiding and somebody's not? But here's, here's the deal. The only way you can begin to think that hell makes any sense is I think if you have a proper understanding of human nature. A proper understanding of human nature. Every worldview is going to tell you something is wrong with the world. Marxism will tell you that there's unequal distribution of wealth, or capitalism is the problem. Pantheists will say you forgot that you're God. You know what Jesus said is wrong with the world? He said it's the human heart. It's in rebellion against God. And the more I know myself and I study history, I think Jesus got it right. The human heart is broken. Even that law-abiding person, I ask people all the time, I say, if we had like some way to take every single one of your thoughts and just project it to become a tweet to the world, how would that reveal your character to be? regardless of whether you follow the legal law or not. So I understand that hell is troubling. I get that. But I think Jesus is right about the human rebellion and how broken human nature is. And by his own authority, I think, yeah, if he says there's a hell, I don't feel the freedom to change it. I just don't. But the reality is, if you're troubled by hell, Jesus offers a way. I mean, he does. Take the claims of Jesus seriously and start there. By the way, I don't know who sent in this question, but one more thing. I realize this is a long answer. My wife and I went to meet with this skeptic group years ago in Orange County where I live. 
And the first came in, and the guy goes, hey, i got a question for you. I started answering, he goes, I want to ask your wife, not you. I was like, uh, we'll see about this. He goes, what about the best person who's ever lived, who does one little thing wrong, goes to hell, and the person who does horrible things, and then repents in his bed, goes to heaven. What do you think? My wife gave a great response. When it was done, I said, okay, you're an atheist. You're saying that God is acting unjust. I don't even understand, as an atheist, how you come up with this standard of justice and injustice. To predict hell is to appeal to an objective standard of justice. I'm not sure how you get there, unless there's a personal God. I don't pretend that answers all the way to hell. That's a huge question. But hopefully that'll at least give you a few things to think about. So, hell yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I'm on fire. <laughs> okay, so here's another one. Um, got a couple of questions. I'm going to read two questions. Okay, one says, um, God says in the Bible that homosexuality against it is against his word, but what harm does it actually do to man? And the second question is, does God hate gays? That's a great question. Let, let, me, let me start with the second one. I, I had a radio debate with a former Christian evangelist who had become a secular humanist. In fact, he was a chaplain at another school very similar to UC Berkeley for a while. And he said one of the things that turned him from his faith to atheism was the idea that he learned in church that God hates gays and considers them an abomination. He said that in the radio, and I stopped him, and I said, where is that in the Bible? I said, where does the Bible teach that? The answer is, it doesn't. Now, the Bible does say in Leviticus 18 that homosexual behavior is an abomination, but it doesn't single that out amongst a whole bunch of other behaviors for clarity. Look, the Bible says every single human being, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your age, your socioeconomic status, doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter your sexual orientation, that every single human being is made in the image of God and has infinite dignity and value and worth. If you're here and you are LGBTQ and you have felt like you've gotten that message from the church, first off, I am sorry that you've been treated that way. I'm a Christian. I get to speak on this issue a lot. I've had some online conversations with people about this topic. And I hear story after story from people who say they're in the church and were treated unfairly on this sin, but Christians ignore other sins. You know what? Sadly, there's a lot of truth about that. I have a friend of mine who's, who's an atheist, who's a philosophy grad student, and we're having a conversation with time. He goes, when you get to speak to Christians, can you tell them to stop being inconsistent? I said, what do you mean? He goes, I have a friend who's a Christian, and he's always railing against homosexuality while he's drunk. <laughs> Friends, that's crazy. If you're a Christian here and you've made in particular gay jokes 
and treated LGBTQ people differently, apologize for that and get that right to the Lord. If you're not a Christian and you think that God hates gays, I don't know where that message came from. Maybe it came from a misinformed, misguided Christian. So I'm sorry, but I want you to know that God loves you and yearns to be in relationship with you. So I approach questions of sexuality as a whole, not through the lens of does it hurt somebody or does it not hurt somebody? Because I believe there's a God, and God has designed us to live a certain way. The question is, how did God design sexuality to be? And has he revealed this plan to us? That's why when I look to the scriptures, I think Jesus taught a certain thing about marriage. As someone who believes in Jesus, believes he's the creator, believes that he's good and loves us, I would look to him and his design for all areas of sexuality. So thank you for asking that one. Okay, so we're going to hit some big topics <laughs> throughout this Q&A, it looks like. Um, I'm going to have a couple questions about evolution. Okay. okay. So, um, one, how can a person reconcile evolution with the six-day creation in Genesis 1? Um, there's another question that says, is macroevolution compatible with the Bible without undermining the integrity of Scripture? Um, and then, okay, let, let's take these one at a time. This is a very complex topic, because when you say evolution, of course, we've got to define it. So one sense of evolution, when the atheist guest today, I was like, define it, because it came up, it goes change over time. I don't know anybody in the history of the world that doesn't think things change over time. <laughs> it's also a term, microevolution change within a kind. There's the idea of common descent. And then there's this, what's sometimes called macroevolution, that this entire process is completely blind, purposeless, and unguided. Strictly speaking, there are many Christians who believe in common descent. I think where most Christians would take an issue is the idea that all of the complexity and diversity of life, from the camera explosion to DNA, can be explained purely through a naturalistic kind of evolution. That's where, in principle, a Christian who believes God designed the world would take issue and even point to certain things within nature that seem to resist being explained by purely naturalistic means alone. Now, Christians can have a range of issues on this topic, uh, so there's not one Christian answer. I think, honestly, if you believe God is the creator and the scriptures are revealed and Adam is a historical person, you are within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. And believe it or not, in terms of standard evolutionary theory, I don't think there's anything directly contradictory with the essentials of the Christian faith. At least there's creative ways to try to wed these together. Now, with that said, in terms of six days, six-day creation is one model many Christians hold to try to make sense of what Genesis teaches. It's a significant model, but it's not the only one. You can actually go back to the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, people like Clement of Alexandria and Augustine, who felt like when you're reading Genesis, the authors are pre-scientific revolution, not trying to give us a scientific account 
That's not the purpose of Genesis. Okay? Now, for me, personally, I usually don't say this in Christian audiences because sometimes Christians get hung up on the age of the earth. But given that this is an outrage, I'll tell you, I actually hold an older earth. I think the science for an older earth is pretty strong. I'm convinced by that. And I think there's very plausible models to make sense of Genesis to fit within that. I'm not going to go into details how to do so, but there are a range of options within the Christian fold. I say time out when somebody argues that you can explain all the complexity and diversity of life through a blind, unguided process. I don't buy that you can explain DNA through that. I don't buy that you can explain surrogatively complex features and other complex things within nature. So that was a little bit on the first one. Is there one or two more on that topic that maybe I didn't get no, to, or is that broad? That's okay, yeah. Okay. Um, look, here's, look, here's the bottom line, okay? There are certain essentials to Christianity, and there are certain important but secondary issues. If Jesus rose from the grave, and some kind of evolution happened, Christianity is true. That's the heart of the faith. And we've got to make sense of how science and faith intersect. I'm not downplaying that question. But if you're serious about the Christian faith, look into the resurrection, because that's the claim historically that tells us either true or it's false. So I think that's a good place to segue. Uh, we only have time for one more question. I'm sorry, I know that there's some more coming in right now, but... Uh... Uh, earlier, you shared how you started started your spiritual quest. So, would you mind telling us the end of that story, or oh. how how did you progress up to where you are now? Uh, sure. And how you uh, how you came to believe that Christianity is true? So, for me, that point of talking with my father, telling him I had doubts, I knew my dad loved me, and ultimately wasn't surprised by the response. But was kind of very free, and like you know, what, I got to figure this out. And if there is a God, I'm responsible for him for the choices I make in the life that I live. At that point, as my wife will test, she was my high school sweetheart and knew me going way back through college and this whole process. I started reading a lot of religious texts, read Christians, read atheists, try to make sense of these questions. And it wasn't like I woke up one night and said, boom, I get it, it makes perfect sense. I think it was just a process for me that things started to fit together. But I actually think what really hit home for me was not just that I thought it was true, but when I, it actually hit home to me that I was a sinner in need of the grace of Jesus. So I read a book in college called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It was written by a Catholic priest who passed away a few years ago by the name of Henry Nowen. And he actually was teaching at uh, the second-rate schools compared to Berkeley. Maybe you've heard of them, Harvard, Yale, <laughs> whatever. And, uh, and he gave it up to go be a pastor in a handicapped community in Canada. He's like, I don't need the fame and the attention. I just want to love people and be Jesus to people. He wrote this book called The Return of Prodigal Son, where he was at the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, seeing this painting by Rembrandt. It's eight feet wide, I think 11 feet high. I've seen it. It's stunning. And he sat there and started to read the story and always thought he was going to have this prodigal son experience. He always thought he was a prodigal son. And someone standing next to him goes, Henry, you're not a prodigal son. You're the older son. He's like, and it stunned him. Because if you know the story, 
and I'm sure most of you do, but in the story, there's this younger son who says to his father, I want my inheritance now, which in that culture basically said, Dad, you are dead to me. You're dead to me. In an honor-shame culture, he shamed his father. And he leaves and goes out in the wild living. I imagine in the story, every single day, the father opened up the blinds and thought, maybe today is the day my son will come home. He sees him at a distance, run out, and embraces him. But do you know where the older son was? He was out in the field working. What does the father do? He went out to the younger son. He also goes out to the older son. See, the younger son was lost in wild living. The kind of living maybe you hear about and people regularly associate with your wonderful city. <laughs> I know it's a stereotype, but, you know, some of it's probably true. <laughs> but the older son was also lost. He was dutiful and he was righteous, but didn't understand the love of the Father. For me, I always thought, I gotta be a Christian, you've gotta have like, I gotta go to prison and come out, I gotta be in a gang, I gotta have like this wild experience. I'm like, that's actually not me. So I thought I was better than other people. I really did, I'm like, I don't do those big sins. I don't do A, B, and C, I'm better than these people. And then I, I will never forget when it hit me, and I'm like, I am so self-righteous, and arrogant, and lack humility, like the older son. I am just as lost and in need of grace. So friends, whether you come into and poured your life into this Berkeley community, you can fill in the dots, whatever you think that means, I want you to realize you have never gone too far for your loving Heavenly Father to say, I welcome you home. I love you. And that son has a speech. He goes, there's no time for speech. You're my son. Or if you come to think, you know what, I didn't commit those big sins. I'm better than other people because I don't do the kind of stuff you see perfectly. You know what? You also need a Savior. And God comes out to you in the way that He came out to me and offers grace. That's what makes Christianity so beautiful. If I could explain it one other way, and I'll end. Some of you maybe saw this story that about six months ago, there was, the story was about a year and a half ago of this cop who comes home and she goes up to what she thinks is her own apartment. She's a floor off, walks in what she thinks is her apartment. A man jumps up on what she thought was her couch, pulls out her gun, and shoots him, thinking he was invading her home. A year later, they're put on trial. She's put for 10 years in prison. The man's son who was killed was, uh, sorry, the man who was killed, his younger brother, was 18 years old. And there's a scene, it went viral, maybe some saw it. He's on the stand, and he says to the, to the girl who shot her brother, he says, you know what, there's a part of me that kind of wishes that you would die just like my brother did. He goes, but I don't. He goes, I love you. In fact, in many ways, I think you did, wish you didn't have to go to prison, and I just want you to know that I forgive you. He turns to the judge. How many of you saw this and know what I'm talking about? It? Good, a few of you did. He turns to the judge and he says, Can I give her a hug? And, it, like, and the judge says, Yes, walks down and gives her a hug. And if you wait a minute, you hear her 
weep. She weeps because he gave her the gift of forgiveness. I see stories like that, and I was sitting on the plane, and I'm like crying. The person next to me is like, are you okay? And that reminded me of what God has done for me. Friends, what sets Christianity apart is grace. It's no matter how hard you work in school, it's no matter how good a person or bad you are. Christianity says there's a God who loves you and welcomes you with open arms. That's pretty amazing. If you don't start a spiritual quest beginning with that, man, you are missing the power of what the Christian story is.